The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. of the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast. I am coming to you. Uh, I'm working on my off day. For the $3 Club, this is five episodes in five days. We began in Tulsa and we end... Finally! The Gerbs has come back to his studio. Yes, yes, I went and uh, uh, got a rapid COVID test yesterday, still waiting on my COVID test that I took on Monday, but I found out there was a place around the corner from where my motel was that I could pay out of pocket and get a rapid test, got the rapid test, I'm clean, so I'm home. Very, very, very excited to be home, excited to... Uh, do a little surprise, fun episode for you guys. And it's going to come with an interview. Dallas, Texas is currently the intersection of so much. A rise in COVID cases, a month's worth of protesting, uh, the tearing down or removal of statues. And we're going to speak to somebody that has been really at the epicenter Of all of it, he is the uh, founder and publisher of CentralTrack.com, a a website that primarily was arts and culture in Dallas. And then COVID hit, all their advertisement went away. And amidst the chaos, they have become something bigger than they were before. It's a great story. And Pete Friedman, who's who's going to uh, be the guy to come on and talk to us, is is great. So uh, uh, please stay for that, because if you like, I often think I get too pedantic about journalism and how media works and explaining the motivations and techniques for how you read the stories that you read or see the stories that you see. Well... I think I go too far with that, and I often get the feedback, no, 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 we love it. We love it when you go inside journalism because a lot of people don't know this. Well, I'm going to test you guys because me and Pete have known each other for a very long time. We come from the same stock when uh, 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 you know it, it comes to our, our journalistic roots. We have a lot of the same values, so you are going to get a very inside look into journalism and the protests. And COVID, and how much money Ticketmaster sells on av- or spends on advertising each month, and uh, oh, also Facebook. We'll get into this, but Central Track had one of their old articles, an article that was three years old, go viral on Facebook, and and we'll see if we can't get Pete to open the kimono a little bit and give us some raw numbers on that. But that's literally misinformation. Or at least it was spreading because people might have thought it was new. 
We'll get into it. But first. Let's go ahead and get up into our mailbag. TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. Again, TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. God, this is so much easier to do when I have my whole studio. Oh, I'm running and gunning, baby. Sean writes, hypothetically, if the Democrats flip the Senate, Biden gets in and they control all three branches of government. Would the Democrats be able to abolish the electoral college system and therefore be guaranteed the presidency through total votes forever? I haven't heard any podcast talk about this, and I'm curious. Uh, you're the only nonpartisan potter that I listen to. Would love to hear your perspective as I am only learning politics. Well, uh, yes and no. You'd be closer if one party controlled Senate, uh, the House and the White House, you're closer to to abolishing the Electoral College. Uh, to do that, you would need a constitutional amendment that requires two-thirds of the House. So even if they had the majority, two-thirds is more than that. You would need Republican cooperation there. Two-thirds of the Senate, again, even if you had the majority, would likely be a slim majority. And then three-fourths of the states themselves. So you would need governors to be in league with you to push on this. Now, the thought would be, because you had Hillary Clinton win the popular vote and lose the Electoral College, that this is a pathway to Democratic power forever. I would be careful what you wish for, though. Right now, according to... An uh, analysis by the Washington Post, indeed, Democrats do outnumber Republicans. Democrats have 39.66% of the electorate, Republicans 28.87. However, independents make up 29.09% of registered voters. Which, by the way, that's the first time I've seen that. That means that there's more registered independents than there are Republicans. I, I got to call Heaton on this. I got to, Heaton's got to, like Heaton has been, the political orphanage. Like, like if you don't belong to one of the two parties that, that you should, you, you, you need to find a home. This is a majority party. This is a majority interest. To the, to the uh, question though that you asked, I also think this means that there's a lot of instability. And if there is a Democratic candidate for which the party does not like, then you have the ability to slosh more over into the Republican side. Now, on the other hand, there also might be more on the Democratic side. But America doesn't like one side in power all that much. And I don't know if that would necessarily change if you had raw votes count. I feel like America would want to get one party out. And that's the one thing that I will always stand up for with the Electoral College, is that it seems to have worked pretty well in terms of not letting one party have, you know, uh, ideological control over the nation. It seems to have switched things out much more. And if the call is, I need one party to have all the control forever... Well, I kind of feel like, uh, again, America doesn't like it. 
Steve writes, I must say, it's interesting listening to your podcast from Tulsa. Most of what I listen to are center-right podcasts like The Ball Work. They would have you believe it was a disaster for the president, while you highlight how everything is great for Trump, or at least that he isn't Biden. Gotta say, my feeling is a Biden presidency uh, where I don't have to spend each day wondering how the president is effing things up sounds attractive. But I'll give you time to win me over to the president's side. Well, Steve, if you're looking for me to win you over to the president's side, then I think you might be waiting a little long. I, I, I certainly do not believe that the, you know, I'm not a Trump fan. I, I will let you know now, uh, in terms of my own biases, I will not be voting for Trump. I will not be voting for Biden either. But what I wanted to get across with the Tulsa situation was just, you know, the pile on was rightly deserved in terms of if you outkick your coverage like Trump 2020 did, then you are going to risk embarrassment. That was a big bet. It was a high risk, high reward situation and it did not reward them. But if you want to look at what did happen, then, you know, 6,000 people in a pandemic that got to clear security is 6,000 people in a pandemic that had to clear security. Like that's, uh, again, it's embarrassing, but let's, let's understand where the strengths are and where the weaknesses are. But as for, I don't know, I've never listened to anything from the bulwark. Um, the one dude what ran uh, Jeb Bush's campaign yelled at me on Twitter once for <laughs> joking about how much money Jeb Bush spent on his campaign. He he got in my face about that because I was making I was making jokes. Uh, but other than that, that's the only connection that I have ever had to the bulwark at all. But I do know that they are they're 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 never Trump guys. They are Republicans who wish to have their party back. And I will say this for the never Trump folks. They were F Trump before every anybody was F Trump. Like guys like that, they were way early, way early on on uh, Donald Trump is a cancer and awful person uh, uh, and every negative thing that you could say. Way before uh, uh, uh What's his butt last week tonight? John Oliver was drumfing it up like they were there. The bulwark was there saying this is a mistake. So credit to them for being hipsters. Mike writes, the neoliberal moderate Democratic National Convention is definitely going to put a bland vanilla moderate platform, especially if there is no floor debate possible. Bernie Sanders did help a number of progressives win in recent primaries by raising funds for them. Kudos to Bernie for continuing the progressive campaign. Mike. Now, this is in response to me asking on the PX3 Extra yesterday what progressives thought about the fact that the party's platform is going to be cobbled together via Zoom. And... Part of the reason why Bernie Sanders dropped out and immediately endorsed Biden was because, and he said so in his exit speech, the progressives need to be heard on the platform. And so I asked all the progressive $3 club listeners, what do you think? Because if you ask me, this looks like a screw job. 
This looks like a classic DNC bait and switch that really they just wanted Bernie out of the race. They wanted to make sure that they could have enough time to heal the party, quote unquote. And now that the one thing Bernie asked for is going to be decided in a way that the moderators can mute mics and stuff like that. Well, I don't know. So I'll put it now out to everybody. Progressives listening to me right now, do you feel like this is a screw job? Because it looks like a screw job to me. Kenneth writes, I disagree with your guest on the police union. I'm a steward in the Teamsters, and when somebody is fired, they are still union members, and the union is required to file a grievance on his behalf. Once the grievance is filed, the business agent will sit down with management and see if they can come to an agreement. If uh, if not, the case goes to a panel where the final judgment is decided. The police union still can supply legal counsel and probably will to any officers that are fired. Thank you, Kenneth. I'm glad we got a union voice on this because... It's something that I'm not a, a a super expert on, but as police unions become more and more of a topic of conversation, it's something I believe we all should be better educated about. Joseph writes, I thought you might find this interesting. A YouTube lawyer is suing the White House over the Bolton situation. So because the government has stonewalled our requests, we're filing suit. We're going to ask a federal judge to enforce our demands, to make sure that the government complies with them, and to disclose this information. This is not a stunt. This is not a joke. We are actually filing a federal lawsuit to enforce our FOIA requests, as we are entitled to do. That is the voice of Legal Eagle on YouTube. I hope he makes John Bolton do the cinnamon challenge next. I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, so effectively what this is, is something that's actually fairly routine in the world of journalism. And that is FOIA's, which is Freedom of Information Act. So basically there are elements of the government that need to be transparent. So you can request certain data from the government and they can say, sure, or they can be slow or they can outright tell you no. At that point... Filing a Freedom of Information Act request is your official petition to say, no, I'm pretty sure I am owed this as a citizen of the uh, country, so why don't you go ahead and turn it over? If the government then says no to that, then you are at the point that this YouTuber is at, where you file a federal lawsuit. And later in the video, he goes on to say that he's working with people that have experience with this. So... Um, suing the White House because of the John Bolton thing is a sexy way to say it, but FOIA requests are filed by journalists all the time. They uh, often retain, especially in big organizations, they retain law firms to uh, try to enforce those FOIAs, and that's what's happening here. Uh, Effectively, what what, uh, the YouTuber wants is the unredacted version of, of John Bolton's book. So, cool. Charlie writes, I've enjoyed the June 11th episode of PX3. Your interview with Michael Sokolow was fantastic. 
I loved how he pushed you to expand and articulate on your opinions. I like that he was able to talk political strategy with you without taking uh, snipe shots at Trump and sort of assuming that your listeners agreed with his agenda, something that has irked me about some of your past guests. Anytime you want to have him on the show, I will listen. Him and the Conspiracy Theory Prof and Gloria Young are my all-star trio of guests. I'm glad that we got a little Mount Rushmore going on. We got my mom. We got uh, Joe Yuzinski. Uh, the conspiracy theory guy, and uh, and now Michael Sokolow. I thought Sokolow was great as well. It was, I was actually emailing back and forth or texting with uh, Tom Merritt, and Tom uh, had also mentioned that he liked the Sokolow interview, and I was like, well, you know, a lot of times I do with these interviews assuming that they're going to be evergreen because often we'll record four or sometimes five of them in one week. You don't want to run all five of them in the same week, so you kind of save them so you have them for a rainy day. And Sokolow was coming on, I forget even what the initial topic was, and we got about 10 minutes into that, and then we got into whether or not Haida Biden is a good strategy. And I just, I, I was joking with Tom, I'm like, like I just knew right there as I was like, in my mind, I was reorganizing my calendar of when all these interviews were going to have to run because Sokolow had just forced himself into the most recent episode because <laughs> we were talking about like polls that had come out like 12 hours ago. And I'm like, all right, well now this interview is McDonald's fries. We got to get it out the door immediately or else they're going to go stale. So I'm glad you liked it. I love Sokolo too. He will be back on the show soon. Eric writes, I didn't uh, know that I have heard you talk about something that many media outlets are missing. Why are we using the police as mental health counselors, parking attendants, code enforcement, speed enforcement, mask enforcement, cigarette enforcement? We have so many things that we try to get the police to police that we are paying for training that some officers will never use and not providing training that a person would need to perform on duty. While the comments are saying defund the police are going to capture the headlines, maybe what we need to say is limit the role of the police. Maybe the police should only respond to violent offenses so that we can properly train them for that role instead of training them to respond to suicides, drug overdoses, and noise ordinances. Among the meta conversations that have happened since George Floyd, I believe that this is probably the most rewarding. The idea that maybe we do need to rethink exactly what quote-unquote the police do. And the officers that react to everything maybe should be more specialized. Now, there are, are, are questions that come along with that, up to and including the fact that specializing the police likely means paying more to specialize the police. But in my conversations uh, and, and emails with cops that listen to this show, one of the common themes are, even the ones that wanted to push back against the qualified immunity thing, is that they're redlining all the time, and even more so now. But in general, they feel like whenever they get in the, in, into their uh, car, this could be the end of their life. If not physically, that they're going to make a hair trigger mistake, and now their life will be ruined. And if that's the case, if, if I'm hearing that and I'm your boss... What I'm hearing is there's too much on your plate. We need to figure out a better way to get the best out of the people that 
are sacrificing, potentially sacrificing their lives for our communities. So I do think that there is a meta conversation. And so here's where I ask for the cops. Cops, email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Do you think that police work could be better specialized? And if so, what would be the best ways to do it? Or tell me I'm totally wrong and I'm totally missing something because I love to hear that too. John writes, with everything going on, it finally occurred to me. Are we seeing the fallout from policies and programs developed in the 80s? This idea came to me after the fallout of the George Floyd riots. There's two parts. First part, back in the 80s, a program was developed to provide military-grade weapons and training to the police force to help combat the runaway drug problem. It trained police to be able to respond with more force, in some cases, against better armed drug cartels. Part of this training was to assume the worst case for every scenario that they were going into, be it a drug raid or traffic stop. Also, about that time, there was a rights movement which was pushing everyone to know their rights and stand up for them if they thought they were being violated. As time progressed, the idea not only spread but was ramped up by getting in the face of the official you thought was violating them. Of course, these two philosophies clash with each other, resulting in in more dramatic confrontations with police officials. The problem is neither side sees the whole issue. The solution has to be for both sides to alter how they interact with each other. Secondarily, in the late 80s, manufacturing began uh, to be exported to third world countries and, most notably, China. With industries providing sizable donations, a.k.a. bribes, to politicians to look the other way, many productions which should have stayed in the United States or other countries were allowed to move to China. Of course, this is not only a, a United States problem. As a result, uh, with the hit of the pandemic, many industries were severely impacted as a result. This was compounded by another late 80s concept of just-in-time inventory. Companies could eliminate warehouses by balancing production and consumption so the stores don't have to stock much. These are some thoughts that came to me. I thought that I would pass them along to you to see if you'd heard or read about any of these ideas. It would be strange if much of this year is fallout from policies and programs developed in the 80s. There's no doubt that the drug war is something that we continue to feel reverberations from. Uh, In my opinion, the drug war is something that has caused tremendous racial strife. I think that, you know, if you look at how many people are in prison and how many people are in prison on drug offenses, it's a stark number. If you look at where drugs have been legalized, it doesn't seem like society is falling apart. So, yeah, uh, there's no doubt to me that the drug war allowed for a lot of things to get out of control. And I think that the faster we roll those back, the better the better we are. The other is more kind of a solid uh, political ideology. The idea that the 80s brought along a lot of exporting of jobs is something that Ross Perot was screaming about. It's something that Donald Trump, I think, partially got elected because of. People do believe now that uh, uh, the full exporting of a lot of industries and jobs out of America was something that did not do America good. Now, how do we get 
back to a place where there are more jobs and more manufacturing in America? The solution to that problem is very complicated. Rishi writes, I just wanted to thank you and appreciate the difficulty you uh, uh, put in with your wife uh, afterwards for your Tulsa episodes. Being a full-on liberal cuckwad, I never thought that the Trumpers in the crowd would have as nuanced thoughts on COVID as the ones that you talked to. It makes me wonder just how much we see uh, a person post on social media is just a post. Thank you for your continued hard work and perspective. Rishi, I thank you. On the other end, Richard writes, Man, last episode was disturbing. Trump really has a cult going. I genuinely worry about what happens if he loses in November. Eh, they'll probably just sound like Gore supporters in 2000 and say that the election was stolen. You know, nothing we ain't seen before. All right, there we go. That's the mailbag for today. I want to thank everybody for sending stuff in. Keep it coming. Maybe, maybe we'll think about... Uh, maybe maybe we'll think about making this a, a more regular thing. If you guys like it. If not, we'll we'll make it a one-time thing. But there we go. The young American at gmail.com. Alright, bonus episode, so I'm not gonna shill to you too hard. I'm just gonna say this. We are on the way to 1k and we're moving we're moving baby 962 of you have joined with us at takepoliticsseriously.com and made sure that you are supporting independent journalism we're, we're mapping out some of the other places that we're going to go i'm looking at you know ways that we can best spend this money so i can bring you the kind of content that you want but we only have the money if you give it to us and you can give it to us at takepoliticsseriously.com three dollar club i mentioned it up top they got five episodes this week normally it's just four five episodes this week because you get the bonus one uh, this week it was on tuesday and thursday join the club be a part of it takepoliticsseriously.com Our guest today is the founder and publisher of Central Track, a website dedicated to arts and culture and news in Dallas. Pete Friedman, welcome to the show. What's up, Bobby? Uh, Thanks for having me. This is, uh, it is, it is great, great, great to have you on. And uh, as I warned the audience at the beginning of this podcast, uh, I, I have, I have always, I always love to get into pedantic journalism conversations. And I always wonder if it's too much for the audience. The audience keeps saying uh, uh, we are going to have, uh, uh, or they, they love the, they love the conversations. And so we're going to test their patience for it because me and you have known each other for a very long time, we are very much cut from the same cloth because we worked at the same newspaper in Syracuse. And uh, uh, I'm I'm thrilled to kind of pick your brain about everything that's gone on with your website over the past couple months. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. We've known each other, I think, for 17 years. It's a long time, man. Wow. It, it doesn't even <laughs> yeah. doesn't feel like it, but but uh, yet here we are. Okay, so so let's start here. Central Track has been along or been around for how long? About eight and a half years. We launched uh, February 12th, 2012. 
and uh, uh, primarily you had come from like music and culture stuff with the Dallas Observer, right? Yeah, I, ca- I kind of came up after college. Uh, I came up in the alt weekly ranks. So, uh, yeah, mostly I w- like I was the music editor at the Dallas Observer. I was the arts and entertainment editor at the Colorado Springs Independent for that. Uh, and the idea with Central Track was to just kind of take that same alternative news weekly ideal and bring it to a more kind of web and social ready uh, environment for a somewhat younger audience. And so you guys are you're you're chugging along. Things are things are 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 you know you you've kept a, a website alive for eight years, yeah. which is <laughs> which is really the only mark for success when it comes to these kinds of ventures. And then COVID hits, and all of a sudden yeah. you you face a very very vexing problem when it comes to advertising, right? Yeah, because the issue is you know our biggest advertisers were all kind of event based. Right. So it's, it's all given the, the content that we cover where our audience is really all about trying to find out what's going on in the city of Dallas. What are they, what are they going to do? What can they go attend? How can they kind of live their best Dallas life? So in turn, all of our advertisers were bars and restaurants or really events, right? Our number one and number two advertiser at the time of the pandemic arrival were Live Nation and AEG, who are the two biggest concert promoters in the world. And so, so yeah, so that's, when, that, yeah, that's where event, your money's coming. When the event got canceled and all the bars and restaurants closed, uh, absolutely the first thing that gets cut, and understandably so, is their advertising budget because they don't need to advertise and get people to events and happenings that aren't happening. So I, I, I really feel like we just needed to set that up just so people can understand this is an institution that has survived for eight years, and now all of a sudden, all the money's gone. Like it is just, it is yeah, just a it. a total barren landscape for you. Uh, uh, yeah, we-, we we went we went from like just barely covering costs to having no income at all. And and that's when I've talked in the past on how the media has been affected by COVID. This is what I'm talking about. Like this is, yeah. it, it is dire for a lot of these sites, big and small. And and so all of a sudden you had to be creative. Now, uh, you find very quickly that although your uh, uh, advertisement is dried up, your regular source of what you would normally cover in terms of live events and things that are happening now is gone COVID is something that people want to read about and they want to read about it from you guys, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that was kind of the weird thing throughout all this is we saw a massive traffic spike when all this kicked off because we do know about the events and bars and restaurant scene who are the industry or who are among the industries most affected by all this. So if you want to get the inside scoop about how that industry is being affected, we're the ones who you, t- who you turn to. So we kind of just immediately went, you know, all pistons firing on COVID related coverage, how it was, you know, decimating the bar scene, how it was ruining the music scene and, you know, doing in-depth information about that, but also focusing on other aspects of the pandemic that, you know, maybe the daily paper isn't because they're so focused on like, just like, just quick facts, right? So like yeah. we're trying to zoom out, maybe do a bigger picture, 
um, tell more maybe personal stories or, you know, just as we always would kind of tell them with a little more attitude and a little more voice than I think most traditional publications might. So, uh, yeah, we, we turned pretty quickly, like as this was all happening, we turned to uh, Patreon as a just potential outlet, right? For we need something. Yeah, <laughs> you just needed on. you needed money, any kind of money. Uh, uh, you know, yeah. now is now is the time to put out the hat and and say like, look, if you want this to live, like you know this this if if this thing flatlines, then it's it's over and it's gone forever. Exactly, and you know what was really heartening throughout all this is that the reader who we've never you know we we don't we we don't ascribe to a paywall model. We've always been very aware of the fact that even our young readers, you know, are at, we, we, we kind of unabashedly target the 18 to 35 year old demographic and our average reader, I think, is 27. Uh, no understanding that reader. Uh, we've never wanted to do a paywall or any sort of uh, inhibitor to the audience finding our content. So, like, the idea of a subscription or anything like that was so far removed from our comfort zone, but uh, it's been very encouraging that over eight years, eight and a half years, we've developed an audience that really does appreciate what we do and finds us integral to their understanding and enjoyment of the city. And we've been very much floated by that uh, uh, PayPal, our Patreon subscription. And then in addition to that, we've also just a a number of people just donated directly, not even in a subscription base they've just been like hey what's your paypal let me send you some cash so it's been really cool especially in this era of like quote-unquote fake news and people hating the media yeah to have an audience that is actively reaching out to us i mean we're you know we're we're we're, we're putting it out there that we could use the help but these people are actively coming out to us Some, sometimes not even aware that we're putting that out there and just being like hey how can we help we want you around we like the coverage you're doing and that is, uh, you know, further uh, kind of snowballed throughout all the protests coverage that we've been doing. Well, that's all uh, right. So that's we're... that's that's where I want to get. But before we get there, let me just ask you some sure. numbers. So COVID becomes something that people really want to read central track coverage of. You said there was a spike. Like, give me a, a comparison of what an average May or June would be compared to where you were just with COVID coverage pre-protest? So we were really hitting a stride heading into all of this. Our, you know, after eight and a half years, I think five of our top seven all-time page view traffic numbers months were uh, like the, the seven months leading into uh, all this stuff. So we were on an upward trajectory. So we were already doing pretty well. And, you know, modestly well. We're, we are a very small budget, you know, shoestring company. Uh, but, you know, we're getting around 150,000 page views a month, you know, just like yeah. a very targeted niche. Uh, first month of coronavirus, we hit uh, 285,000. Wow. Which is, you know, al- almost double. Almost and double. Then, yeah. So clearly there was a want and need for our coverage in a way that uh, I don't know if it hadn't been there before, but it was maybe uh, just a little heightened. I I wonder if that is, (laughs) I wonder if that is 
you know, I, man, I would, I would love to see industry wide uh, uh, results on stuff like that because it is fascinating to see how ad dependent some of these bigger organizations are. Because I would imagine that they probably saw traffic spikes as well. They just couldn't yeah, keep I, things I, going I cause they were top heavy. Yeah. I, so I've spoken to some, you know, Dallas media power players, you know, when this all kicked off, we started doing like an Instagram live interview series. And one of my first guests was the editor, of the mor- editor of the morning news, Dallas morning news. And, you know, he confirmed to me that, uh, first month of Corona was also like one of, if not their biggest traffic months of all time. I was talking to my friends at the city magazine, D magazine, and they were also having like a major spike. And it's just a really difficult thing to reconcile because, you know, and you understand this, I think Justin, it's just yeah. like a news person, right? You feel compelled to write during these times of crises. And, you know, when, when, when current events happen, you want to be current on those events oh, as, a, as a journalist. It's, right? it's, feel, it's like, feel, like, you like feel a, a sense of duty and inspiration. You, you have to pay a journalist to cover the dumb stuff. Like you really get, yeah, you get the yeah. crises for free. Like, like that, like you would, uh, uh, you, you, you just like your, your eyes just kind of roll back like the undertaker and you just sort of start mowing <laughs> through anything that is actually interesting and relevant. And, uh, you know, your, your need to get to the center of it is really what is, is, is driving you and it's driving the audience. Uh, but all of that, yeah, right. Exactly. Is, is its own thing. And then George Floyd gets murdered. Uh, Dallas yeah. is a city that obviously has its own uh, a past of of racial tensions. It is a massive city, as I think you were the first person to tell me that uh, Dallas will be very, very quick to say that although Houston technically is the fourth largest city yeah. in America, it is smaller than what is the Dallas Metroplex, which includes sure when you include the metro, yeah, Fort Worth area. and Dallas, Plano, Fort Worth, Arlington, and, yeah. and all that, yeah. Uh, that Dallas is effectively the fourth largest city in America. George yeah. Floyd dies, and now all of a sudden, protests throughout the country. Dallas is no different. And now, Central Track seems to really be plugged in because this is exactly the kind of content that your age demographic wants to read about, right? Well, it's not even just that. It's also because kind of the way we're wired, right? We are kind of an of-the-people publication right if you are in the music scene you want to read such a track because we are also of the music scene right uh i spoke to the one of the tv news stations uh a couple months before all this happened uh because they wanted to pick my brain about how they could better cover certain niches around town and what i told them was like it's really important from our perspective and where we've gained a lot of our value is not being tourists to the scene that we're scenes that we're covering, yeah. But being familiar faces within those scenes, I mean, it's like the it's like the old adage that we learned in you know J school, right? Like one on one type stuff. Like you don't just want to interview the the lawyers and the judges when you're covering the court. You got to meet the janitors and and yeah. the people who actually literally know where it goes down. Uh, so that's always been our ethos, right? We know all the bartenders around town. We know all the bouncers, uh, and that's where we get a lot of our our stories from is these people knowing us and trusting us and coming to us as content so when all the protest stuff started breaking out and you're right dallas has a uh, long and rife history with 
racism, you know, even, you know, the JFK assassination had tinges of racism to it in terms of like the, in, the, the way that the president was received here in the city. Uh, and then a couple of years ago, there was a, on July 7th, 2016, uh, at a uh, police brutality protest, uh, five Dallas cops were shot. So tensions have been wild, I think, here as everywhere in America, uh, but no different here. And when all this, these protests broke out, really the first night of protests were May 29th here in Dallas. And we just immediately kind of hit the pavement and we started doing Instagram live streams and, you know, even like Twitch streams doing all this and really telling the story from the ground. And, you know, it was something that I kind of beat my chest a little bit about because I would hear, you know, these news choppers hovering above all this. Yeah. And, you know, you get, you, uh, there is a real value to a bird's eye view, right? Seeing like the total scope of everything. But I think where our coverage really set itself apart and has continued to throughout all this is we're not, you know, we're down amongst the people listening to what they're saying. We're not just looking at them from a distance and interviewing suburban police chiefs about how they would handle this thing, which is yeah. what a lot of the local TV news, TV news stations are doing. Yeah, and then they get in the helicopters and and look at undulating masses of crowds and and call it a night. But when I'm on Twitter, and also and also just and also they just parrot what the cops have to say about the stuff. Often, yeah, too, is, is the real is the real, un, unfortunate truth. But that's just how how it goes a lot of times. You know, and that that's, I mean, how many times you're watching the TV news, do you hear police said whatever, sure. or according to police reports. And and that's the thing. And that's is, exactly is, what's being protested. Yeah, for for me, as things went down in Oakland, I wasn't reading or looking at what the the helicopters were. Although Jesus, there were enough of them in the sky uh, for you know sure. nights on nights on nights. But I was looking on Twitter. I was looking at, at, at right. like what what these conversations were there. I, you know, that's where you're not going to find out in a helicopter that you know there are a uh, largely black protesters yelling at largely white kids breaking windows, right? Like, like that's something that you can't tell <laughs> yeah. from a helicopter. You can't tell from a helicopter that it was a, a cop that started uh, uh, pushing a rioter that then escalates things into something where the cops are throwing tear gas into, in, into crowds. That's something that happens on, on the ground. And you guys dedicated yourself to that. But you personally were what out in the protest for how many days in a row? Oh, God. I think I was out. I mean, I was out that Friday and Saturday, which were like the weird or the truly like aggressive nights of all this. The first two were, you know, cops rolled up on the crowds and kind of full riot gear and uh, really in an act of aggression showing up at these protests and then kind of almost begging the crowds to respond. Uh, we've been covering now. It, Today, I don't know when this is airing, but uh, today on Friday. It'll be today. It'll be, be today. Yeah. This is, a, this is the 29th day, straight day of protest in Dallas. I have not been out all 29 days personally, but someone at Central Track has for, I think we've done 28th of 29 days as far as like live streaming this. I was out most of the first week. And really what was crazy about that is, you know, I was in the thick of it. I, I got tear gas multiple times I got hit in the leg with a flashbang that cops threw just in, you know, with impunity into a crowd about 50 yards away that they had no idea to identify who was media, who wasn't, who was protesting peacefully, who wasn't, uh, 
so yeah, it's just it, it was a you know that that's a perspective that you're not going to get from those shoppers we talked about before. You were telling me uh, the other day about your experience on uh, a bridge in Dallas. Can you can you tell folks that story? Yeah, so that was uh, you know that was on the Monday. So that was the fourth day of protesting, and it was the day after a wide seven p.m. or not citywide, uh, like a certain area wide seven p.m. curfew was put in place by the local police uh, in order to in their estimation, kind of calm the nighttime hostility. So there was, you know, obviously tensions are still high because arrests were being made, tear gas was being thrown, uh, like just all, you know, things were wild. Uh, on that fourth day, there was a protest that we went to cover and it was actually intentionally and coordinated even with the local government to make sure that this event was happening outside of the curfew zone so you know people were kind of nervous about that but at the same time they had assurances hey you're going to be fine you're outside of the curfew zone and then after these uh i guess two hours of speeches and chanting and whatnot as happens with most gatherings demonstrations like that a march breaks out so this march kind of it took off from the courthouse where it started and it wasn't entirely clear where it was headed, but it was clear by the SWAT trucks that were blocking certain streets and the cops were yelling at you not to go down those streets, that there were definitely streets that it wasn't going to go down, right? Yeah. Uh, and it was basically funneled onto a bridge, this kind of uh, landmark jewel of a bridge that was built like within the last decade here in the city. And once on the bridge, it was, I mean, I don't know how much you've been following like these notions of police protest tactics, but it was a kennel, right? They kenneled the crowd onto this bridge. When the crowd got about halfway onto the bridge, they were met with a line of cops in riot gear who started shooting rubber bullets and tear gas into the crowd. And when the crowd, which had nowhere to go but back, turned around, there were was another line of cops that had followed them up the bridge. And... That night, the police uh, arrested 674 protesters who they'd kind of pinned onto this bridge. And it was just a wild scene because there's a huge American flag flying at the top of the bridge. Yeah, It's the citywide landmark that you see on Sunday night football when they're broadcasting Cowboys games. There were choppers all over the place. It's just, just a really, truly insane visual. And while I would argue that some of the previous day's activities felt uh, more traumatic. Like there were times in downtown Dallas felt like kind of a war zone in terms of the clashes between protesters and police. That was like a Hollywood picturesque moment, right? It had all the visuals of like the city landmark, you know, hundreds of people on a bridge with police on either side. Uh, so that was the night that I think really a lot of the city government and maybe casual news consumers really had their eyes open to what happened because it's just like the cops arrested almost 700 people just at once and mass. Yeah. It's a tough thing for a, a, a public to reconcile. So uh, in the wake of that, the police have uh, since dropped all charges against those who they detained in very tight zip tie uh, cuffs behind their back for up to four hours on the bridge that night. 
And they've also, uh, as of yesterday, dropped uh, the charges against the arrests they made on uh, the people who violated the curfew. And there's also been an injunction uh, that some local defense attorneys worked with, uh, even city attorneys on, to get the police to have a 90-day ban on using tear gas or what, what they're calling, quote, less lethal bullets, which are like rubber bullets, wooden bullets. that sort of thing so the last couple so it's been 29 days really 25 of them have been like obnoxiously non-contentious yeah but the first four days were just insane it got intense got intense uh you gotta tell the story of you're up on the bridge uh uh people are being arrested and you are live streaming on central tracks instagram you get the the uh, the journalistic sense to go over to where people are getting are, are being detained, go talk to the people and and hear their stories. But you have a little trailer with you. Yeah. So what happened was, and I was very fortunate, right? I had a press pass on me. I had the wherewithal to honestly make one that afternoon. I'd never made a press pass for myself before, <clears throat> so I made one that day. I was like, just in case, I need it. Uh, I ended up kind of hopping over the like, expansion of the bridge into like the eastbound side, where most of the activity was on the westbound side. And I just kind of found myself amongst a bunch of other press people while all of the you know stuff was going down. So I ended up being fortunate where the, the cops, because there were about 15 of us press members all together, were like, okay, we're not going to mess with this group. You guys go stand over here. So I'm just on Instagram live streaming all this and documenting it right like frankly just shouting at cops being like what's the charge yeah <laughs> just trying to get information and just getting nothing <clears throat> and then just hanging out on the scene and just trying to get a grasp on it and eventually things start like the other media outlets started to you know dwindle away cause, you know they had their 11 p.m print deadlines things yeah. like that so i'm just hanging out and the scene you know the tensions after about four hours start to lessen and I just start shouting at the protesters on the other side of the bridge. And I'm like, what are you guys being told? What are you hearing? And I just, I distinctly remember this guy stood up and was like, wait, are you pressed? I want to talk to you. Let's talk. And I just walked over right over to him. Like, and we're across like a, a like just a little medium there and talked yeah. to each other across that. And the cops were just like, oh, whatever. There's too much other stuff going on. And they didn't get in our way. But really the only other press person still on the scene at that point because he was still doing live spots for CNN was uh, the their local correspondent, really their Texas correspondent, Ed Lavendera. And what happened was I was just kind of going up and down the line and interviewing as many of these detained protesters as I could. And he just kind of, yeah, he took the, the note. He's like, oh, shoot, that's a good idea. I should do that too. <laughs> and he was literally just like following me like five to ten feet behind to my right as I'm moving like – because I'm like stepping to my left and interviewing protesters by protester. He's kind of like overhearing, being like, oh, that's an interesting story. And then just jacking my interviews. Oh, that's so funny. And uh, asking people to repeat the same quotes that they gave before. And it was a, you know, but that's a, that's something that happens, obviously, you know, in terms of like, you know, people in like the locker room, you know, one person asks sure. a question, everyone gets yeah. the answer. Uh, but it was, it, it, it was certainly amusing too that we, this upstart, plucky, internet, feisty, organization we're literally leading the way for cnn for cnn well of course uh uh, all right so (laughs) so as all this is going on um 
you you guys are are continuing to see yet another jump in traffic, right? Yeah. So this month is beating that first month of coronavirus. We're yeah. like we're we're at uh, you know there's still about a week left in the month, and we're at uh, three hundred and sixty thousand page views. So we're we're smashing records over here, uh, which is just it's kind of a tough thing to reconcile. You know, we had, we talked earlier about you know, feeling inspired by these moments, but it's, it's weird to look at that data and just be like, Oh, when everything hits the fan and times are tough, yeah, you know, the the numbers are spiking and especially when the ads are down, but uh, yeah. So we're, yeah, the the protest coverage has been another just clear instance where the audience is turning to us for that. Even, you know, I've been interviewed at central track has historically been ignored by other media outlets in town and kind of like shut on really and be like, Oh, look at these, this bastard stepchild, the Dallas media scene. But in the last couple of weeks, I've been interviewed on the primetime local TV news, like multiple times on various stations. And I've been on the, the sports station, the radio station, the rock station has had me on. So it's been interesting to see that we're kind of being recognized for what we've always done all along. Yeah. Uh, all right. Because you are in a, in, in, in a split position with this. You not only are out there covering these things like a reporter, but you're also the publisher and the creator of the site. You are the responsible person to yeah, keep this. Signing in, coverage, yeah. yeah, you are. And, and also the bottom line, like you have to understand, you know, money comes in, money comes out. You can, you can afford to have infrastructure, blah, blah, blah. Uh, sure. Have advertisers come back. Is there more money? Obviously you turned to Patreon and you've had a great outpouring directly from the community but with all these page views normally the metric is cool more page views mean more advertising, more advertising real estate yeah so uh what uh yes and no we were fortunate where we knew a couple like we did get one big advertiser like when the coronavirus stuff hit because they recognized like oh this company is doing really well this is the audience we want to hit and we can get a great deal on that right now if we buy so uh, we did get one kind of early on, but what was really interesting is once all the protest stuff hit, we got a huge spike in interest. Really, probably as many or close to as many in the last month outside inquiries about ad sales as we've had like in the three state years. Uh, very few of those have turned into ads yet. Uh, like we're having, you know, we're sending media kits back and forth and answering questions and things like that. But, you know, people, I think, recognize that, you know, that voice that we're providing and wanting to, you know, this is a flashpoint in American history. And I think, yeah. that, you know, certain brands are like, I want to be on the right side of that history. Uh, to the point where even some bars and restaurants in Dallas, which have historically had uh, been accused of, like, racist dress codes and things like that, you would think wouldn't be interested in, putting associating their name with us, who is the outlet that would call them out for that kind of practice. Yeah. Uh, they've we've gotten a couple of inquiries from from some of them, which is an interesting thing in and of itself, because it's like, is this PR? Like what yeah. are the, what are they thinking as far as why they want to line those us? Uh, but surely, yeah, that interest is encouraging. Hopefully it's something that we can uh, convert into ways to continue to grow the site and uh, you know, but we're so busy just banging out constant content about everything that's going on that some of that uh, ad sales stuff is unfortunately falling by the wayside. 
So while all this is happening and you're having these like gigantic traffic months, there's one more thing that I want to go over with you. And that is uh-huh. one story that that is almost troubling how much attention that it has got. Uh, uh, can you yeah. explain the story of the the uh, uh, cops are going to be allowed to run over protest bill? Yeah. So basically, you know, protesting, at, you know, in Dallas and frankly, in every major American city, I would say, is not really a new thing. I think we're seeing a crazy volume right now in the last 30 days, obviously. Uh, but, you know, kind of every summer there's been protests here in Dallas, as I'm sure in Oakland as well. You know, like, yeah. uh, you know, Mike Brown, Trayvon Martin. There's just so many instances where uh, people feel compelled to take to the streets, even just like the election of Donald Trump resulted in various protests. So we were just seeing a crazy number amount of protests here in the area and we're covering it like crazy. And as a result, when we found out that this kind of suburban Texas house representative uh, floated this bill that was relating to that, it definitely piqued our interest and we figured it would be of interest to our readers. So in 2017, this state Senator uh, floated a bill to make it legal to run over protesters who were blocking the road, basically giving the right of way to the car and not the pedestrian. Um, it went nowhere. This is, uh, you know, it's just literally a, a probably a stunt of a proposal on yeah. this guy's part to like placate his base. And in fact, you know, it was going to be voted on uh, to hit like the second phase of multiple phases towards becoming law. Uh, like three days or four days after Charlottesville when Heather Heyer got hit. So it, it was just dead in the water. It went nowhere, and it was just clearly kind of a stunt that it was, and no one in the Texas legislature was going to touch it. When all of these current protests started popping off, that story somehow started circulating on Facebook with the headline that said, Texas lawmaker proposes bill to legalize running over protesters in your car. Which uh, like like in this could, in this environment nationally, like you couldn't oh, ask for a to a conservative who's like, hey, screw the protesters, right? It's like well, oh, or it's, or it's, yeah, you know, or or the other one. Like Texas is just the perfect state to have that bill in this moment, regardless of the fact that yeah, it, it, it's oh, three years old. Totally Texan thing, right? Yeah. Like, oh, Texas proposed this bill? Yeah, sure. Of course, right? And, uh, you know, as much as it cracked for the far right, it's also cracked for the far left. Oh, of course. Yeah. You know, so it works out both ways. But the article, you know, it's a three-year-old article. You know, it says the date at the very top of the story. And it just says this is a proposed bill. But the headline, which said, you know, legal to run over protesters, was really all that was, that was the catnip, right? Like, that's what was getting people crazy. And we, that, that story uh, is responsible for the single highest traffic day in Central Track history, which is the past weekend, like on a Saturday even, which is not a huge traffic month for us. Uh, that story got 40,000 pages itself that one day, uh, which is insane. And honestly, we weren't even like paying that much attention because we were out covering the protest, focusing on other things. And for as much as I do obsessively check Google Analytics, I check it less on the weekends. Uh, so then I, I remember looking at it on Sunday and talking to my fellow editor 
And we were just like, this is absolutely wild. Uh, and I think it speaks to some of the media literacy or lack thereof in our society where this is clearly an old bill. Uh, you know, if you look it up anywhere else for like follow-up coverage onto this proposal, you can see that the, the bill did not pass. Yeah. And that we're talking about something from 36, 40 months ago. Uh, but we felt compelled to add like a editor's note to the top of the story just to kind of further be like, Hey guys, just be careful what you're sharing. No, like this is not actually happening. This is, you know, it's like, you know, putting out a story in, uh, you know, last summer that Tom Brady might leave the Patriots. Like, like that's long gone. Like I told news. Uh, so we put, you know, we put a disclaimer at the top, but interestingly, uh, it hasn't really slowed down the traffic. The story's still doing really well, which I think speaks to the unfortunate reality and something that I am constantly uh, battling internally is a lot of people only read the headline. Um, even to the point where I wrote like a personal note, and I think this is where you maybe saw it, Justin. Yeah. Like on my personal Twitter, just being like, hey, we have to put an update to this story because it's just a wild misappropriation it's, yeah, of the content. It's, it's, a, it's bad and, information. It's not wrong information. It's just bad information if it's, if it's being shared yeah. in the context that this well, is going to happen right now, that it's information, urgent. Yeah. Right? It's, it's dated. So, but what's funny, so I, did, I, I think you saw it on my Twitter, but I put like a, a similar thing on my Facebook. And the way that like shares work on Facebook is if you share an article that someone else shared, it doesn't necessarily share like what they had to say about it. So I had like a friend who shared it, like I think under the guise of like, "Hey, good job, Pete!" Like way to like take this, like be proactive about it. But then I saw people shared it from my friend, (laughs) being like, "Oh, what an interesting bill being proposed!" Yeah, and like there's like literally beyond the date that opens the article, the first four paragraphs are like, "Hey, everyone, please read this. This is a dated article. Know what you're sharing," and it, it, you know, it just didn't. Slow. It's so some, but not not to nothing. I mean, it's it's our number one story on the site today as well. So, just so people understand, this is a major problem with Facebook. So much so that yesterday, John Hegeman, the uh, vice president of Feed and Stories, said that there will be now a pop up that comes when you share an article that is over three months old. In fact, that's what it says: is this article is over three months old, and you can either continue to share it. Or you can go back uh, because they want to give more context and sharing these kinds of stories. So my question to you, Pete, since this is kept going, it is still the number one article on your site while there is much more relevant information. Do you plan on changing the headline to make it clear that maybe 2007 bill proposed or 2017? I hadn't thought about that. That's interesting. Uh, I will say just, in, you know, that's something to consider. And I'll probably, after this phone call, discuss that with my other editor and be like, is this something we need to further uh, kind of handhold the reader on? But I will say an interesting thing about that proposal about, like, the dated article, like, this is older than three months. Yeah. Central Track, you know, we are not the New York Times. Facebook doesn't work with us. No. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, our stuff, like, we never get those features that Facebook rolls out. As far, Facebook looks at us no different than it would look at, like, literally any website on the internet. Yeah. So that's also true, frankly, of 
other legitimate, but, you know, uh, just news sites that pop up or, uh, on across the political spectrum, you know, like until what, like six months ago, like was Facebook treating OAN as like a legitimate thing that people were checking? I don't think so. And now that's a whole other argument for, uh, a whole sure. other discussion yeah. for another day, OAN, but like, you get what I'm saying? Like things yeah. pop up all the time. And until you hit a certain threshold, Facebook just doesn't give a fuck about you. Yeah. Uh, and like the features that it rolls out to be like, we support the news are a joke. And, you know, uh, Central Chat is absolutely a publication that needed the help. Like Facebook put out like a, like a grant for media companies at the top of coronavirus. And, you know, we like our application, like they handed out like 400 and everyone that like the grants went to like the Boston Globe and the Washington Post and the Dallas Morning News not the actual places that I think needed the, the boost, right? Or that really were going dis- to possibly disappear in lieu of everything that was happening. You know, sure, daily papers are in dire straits these days, of course. But, like, the idea that Central Track can go away tomorrow versus the idea that the Dallas Morning News can go away tomorrow are, you know, one's much more likely to happen than the other. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you're a betting man, feel free to place your money on whichever one you want. <laughs> um, but the... Uh, you know, Facebook just has never really been supportive of uh, independent media, and frankly, none of the social media are. Uh, and that's a difficult thing, especially because it, that is how we proliferate our content. You know, still at this point, even though we have developed a loyal readership base and we've got like a decently growing newsletter, and now direct access to readers through Patreon and things like that, uh, social media accounts for seventy percent of our traffic. And legitimately, eighty-five percent of that, seventy-five percent, is from Facebook. Yeah, like it is, so it is still like it is still the king. Roll, yeah, as much as everyone likes to roll their eyes at Facebook and mean like, oh, like only old people use it or whatever. I mean, I can just tell you factually, like that's not true. Young people absolutely go to content because they see it on Facebook, and I have the stats to show it. And as much as I wish I could follow the lead of my friends were like, oh, I finally deleted Facebook off my phone for mental health. <laughs> I just have not afforded that opportunity because it's just it's part of our model. It's part of what it is. Uh, Central Track yeah. is the website. Uh, where can people find uh, all of your all of your social? It's all Central Track everywhere? Yeah, I mean, I'm certain one is Central underscore Track. Or I think on Facebook it's Central Tracker. But honestly, if you just go to any social medium, you put in Central Track, two words. Our uh, our feed will pop up, likely if if not the very top, then among the top ones. And if you see the black and white CT logo, then that's us. So, yeah, that's please it. check us out. We are, uh, uh, I think, a pretty unique publication. They really, but we don't things like such check don't exist in other cities, really. So um, I I like to think we're doing interesting journalistic uh, experiments here. I think that you were doing a great job. I'm, I've been so proud to see uh, uh, you not only continue to keep that uh, uh, boat afloat, but also now in these times really find a voice that uh, is unique and important in the landscape. That's why we wanted to have you on. Pete Friedman, publisher and creator of Central Track. Thanks so much for coming on, man. Thanks for having me, man. And Justin, I'm so proud of you too, man. It's cool to, to you know, See how, how how we've both grown since our college days. Oh, now we're now we're just embarrassing everybody listening. All right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Enough of that noise. And that'll bring us to the end of this 
program. I want to thank everybody who makes it possible. Specifically, the Titanic, $10 tier, Modesto's own Logan, Thor, NH, Blumkin, Chad, Headphones, Neil, Water Ice, Scoop, MacBook Pro, Dallas Danger, Taylor, Middle Age, Mike, DTNS, Hack 5, Brad, Wicked, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, Frozen Summer, Zack and Cheese, Captain Bunzo, Zombie Doc, Berkeley, Steven, your boy, Craig, TripleFilm.com, Robert, Mr. Tallyman, D-Laser, I Poop My Pants, Government Unfiltered, Spawn, Jerry Tolbert, uh, Gamer Goo, Andres, Archie, J. Milius, The Gen, Emily, Olin and Angela, DL, Brian, Insert Scoop Name, Nomadic Terran, Miranda, Robert, Herschel, Glenn, Wolf, Brand, Chili, Scoop, Dustin, Richard, Nick, Lindsay, Random, and Andrew. You want to join their ranks, you head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. What'd you guys think? Did you like Monday and Wednesday? I know I'm keeping you up on a Friday, but what do you think? Do you like, uh, do you like maybe Monday, Wednesday? Maybe we go to Monday, Wednesday, maybe Friday in general. If we've got something to do, then we do it on a Friday, but otherwise we keep it a little bit more active. Maybe that'll be the way to do it. I don't know. Hit me up on Twitter at Justin R. Young. If you've got an opinion on that or anything else. Till next time, I want to thank Pete Friedman. I want to thank everybody who makes this show possible because this is the end of it. Not the end forever, but the end for this week. A reminder, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more, they're talking about politics as we speak. But this is the only show that dares to have the gumption to talk about. Oh, Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>